Welcome to the Men of Magic, an interview podcast that gets into the lives of your favorite Magic the Gathering personalities. With your host, Robert Martin, and now the Men of Magic begins. Welcome to another episode of the Men of Magic, the show I'm joined by the person who is the face of Channel Fireball. Kansas City. Had the best start of attorney ever at San Diego. Winner of the Community Cup and does Magic TV along with my co-host on Hardcast, Christian Sean Gregson. I'm talking about Luis Scott Vargas. Hello. When did you get started with Channel Fireball? Uh, well, I, I, I started Channel Fireball. <laughs> uh, yes. We, with, uh, with you and John, I mean. The whole Basically, thing. we launched right around, right after uh, Pro Tour Kyoto in 2009. It's you know, easy to, easy to track it to the Pro Tour there. Uh, so that would be February, because it was the first Pro Tour. So we launched, yeah, February 2009, so I guess we had our two-year anniversary, as it were, uh, you know, this February. And, yeah, that, I mean, we've been going pretty strong ever since. I've been very happy with it. You're the face, the leader of Team Fireball. What does that involve? Well, it, it's I, have, I play, I guess, a lot of roles involved in it, because there's me as, you know, the, the like, editor-in-chief of the website, where... You know, I'll actually edit articles and, you know, schedule articles and stuff like that. You know, I have to deal with a lot of administrative stuff, too. But then there's also me who plays Magic because I go to all these events. I play Magic. And then there's me who runs, well, works with other people. I, don't, I wouldn't even necessarily say I run the team. But, uh, yeah, we've got a good group of guys who, you know, we get together before the tournaments. And sometimes we make Cobblade and sometimes we make White Winnie. <laughs> team Fireball has been doing really good over the last couple of years. Why does it seem like Team Fireball does better than other so-called team sites? Well, I think uh, part of it is that we are, you know, an actual like a team. Like, I mean, you can anyone can like call themselves a team, but I think the things that matter when it comes to that sort of thing are how well you work together and you, the fact that you actually do work together as opposed to just being like a loose affiliation. Like, we're definitely a pretty close team. We, you know, we're all good friends. It wouldn't work otherwise, and we prioritize like getting live time to meet up like before every pro tour is probably the most important because that's that's where you get like the majority of the testing done you had a conversation with tristan regarding owen and the possibility of him becoming player of the year okay i, I remember <laughs> tristan bringing it up I, I never actually said he was going to be player of the year i said he was going to do very well though uh he's even done better than uh better than i thought but yes uh go, go on <laughs> oh, okay he's been obviously having a great year what do you think has made Owen take the next step in Magic. I mean, I think it's pretty obvious. Like, uh, it's be, being on the team. Not, not that you know, Owen wasn't awesome. If he wasn't like an awesome player, then he he wouldn't do well regardless. But the fact that he was, you know, a very good player, but just never really had a you know a, a team basically. And the fact that he started testing with us, and you know, he contributes a lot. You know, so it's not it's certainly not like a one way street. But he gets the benefit of being on a team, and instead of when we played Rug at San Juan last year, he played, you know, Mono Red, and Rug was much, much better. Whereas now this year, you know, he's playing, he got to play, you know, Cobblade in, in Paris, which is, you know, the best standard deck in the last five years or whatever. You've had Magic TV. It's one of the few video podcasts out there every week. It's nearing 100 episodes. <laughs> I was saying, for the 100th episode, we're, we're going to... Do something special, though. We have not figured out what, what, what yet exactly. What are the challenges of doing a quality cast week after week? I mean, organizing, uh, you know, we have, it takes, it's more than just a two-man operation. We, you know, we've got uh, um, Jim Butler is our, our film guy, and he, he, he does a lot of work. He does all the editing. Like, there's, 
there's a lot that goes into it, and you know, we have we have our audience help us think of topics. That definitely helps. But we still, you know, figuring out topics every week, which I'm sure is something you know you're accustomed to. Uh, yes. <laughs> like scheduling in general, like you know, it's it it does take a, quite a bit of work, and it's definitely rewarding. I mean, it's it's a lot of fun. Like I said, so. What is it like to work with Tristan? <laughs> uh, Tristan's pretty awesome to work with. We uh, we, we definitely uh, I think have a good dynamic going. We. I mean, he's a fun dude to hang out with, and, you know, we enjoy each other's company. Like, uh, I do tend to make fun of him from time to time, but uh, he certainly returns the favor, so. <laughs> well, speaking of making fun of him, if he didn't have to do his job for Channel Fireball, do you think he could be a, a grinder enough to be on the tour? Yeah, I mean, he qualified for San Diego uh, last year, and he, he played in the Pro Tour. He lost playing for Day 2, unfortunately. Um, and, I, you know... He, I think it's pretty clear that if if he wanted to play on the pro tour, I mean he already has played on the pro tour. He could he could play more, but you know it's hard, kind of hard to play Magic when you're selling cards at every tournament. <laughs> Absolutely. Now you've talked a little bit about your relationship with Paul Chian, and you and many others have called him one of the most talented players in Magic. Why is that? Uh, Paul was always like. I always thought he he was better than me. Like when we you know we used to live together for like two years and. We were, you know, really close friends, and we, we would play, like, you know, I played a ton of Magic with and against him, and uh, he was just one of the best, you know, not only just technical players, but in terms of, like, you know, uh, the uh, kind of outside the just the, the box stuff, like, he's also very good at, like, reading other people, figuring out. I, I always felt like I was at a disadvantage when I played him. He, he knew me so well that he, he, you know, he could see past all my shenanigans, and uh, <laughs> he, he also had a pretty incredible, like, desire to win, like... You know, he came back for one tournament for Denver, and he, t- he made top eight, and despite having, like, not played at all. <laughs> yeah, I was going to ask about that. Considering the fact that how difficult it is to do that format in Denver and to really have little or no experience with it outside of a couple of, of times you did the day before the tournament, what does that say about him as a player? to do that well. I mean, he still plays on Magic Online, so it's not like he hadn't touched a card, though I guess that's not actually touching cards, but uh, he, he's, he's still, you know, the, he's still a really good player. He still doesn't need much time to pick it up. Like, he, I mean, he played triple Scars, and he had done, you know, Scars events, but then Besiege came out, and he hadn't done any drafts, and we did, like, one practice draft after he went uh, 8-0-1 or whatever on day one, and then, you know, he <laughs> he went, like, you know, 4-1 or whatever it took to, to, to make top eight. So, you've had some great you have some great relationships with the people in the Magic community. What about your relationship with David Williams? Uh, Dave's an awesome guy. I, I, uh, his, I, I think the main reason that me and him like got to know each other was because of Vintage. He, he's just like a huge fan of Vintage. He plays the Vintage World Champs when he can. Uh, he loves playing Vintage tournaments, and you know we played Vintage against each other many times. And uh, I still remember once. Uh, a, a local store here, uh, Eudemonio, uh, holds a Power 9 series every year, or at least they used to, and they have a tournament for each different piece of the power. And on my, I was on my way to the Time Twister tournament, so the winner gets a Time Twister. It's not like a huge tournament. And Dave calls me. He's like, hey, when does the tournament start? I'm like, what tournament? He's like, the Time Twister one. I'm like, uh, you're here in Berkeley? He's like, yeah, I flew in from Vegas to play in it. So, <laughs> I mean, that's how much he likes he likes vintage. He, he, of course, beat me round one of that tournament. <laughs> so... <laughs> Yeah, like, uh, Vintage is, is, I think, definitely how we know each other best, though. I mean, we've certainly played outside of that as well. Uh, he's definitely an awesome guy and definitely loves magic. It was funny, interviews I've done in the past, and 
they've all talked about uh, David would have not gone into poker full time, that he would be right now considered one of the best at magic. It's interesting to see how many of the pro players now are splitting their time between poker and magic. Do you think that's difficult to do and still be at the top of your magic game? Yeah, I, I would. I mean, it's the fact that like Efro, you know, he almost top eighted Paris, like you know, top you know top eight at nationals. Like, he had a really good year last year and so far this year, despite the fact that he skipped Nagoya, and doing that while playing poker, you know, <laughs> yeah, I just watched him, you know, make the finals of, uh, of one of the, the World Series events. It's pretty insane. Like I can't, I can't imagine how hard it is to split your attention to two two games, regardless of how what the skills may transfer over. There's still two different games, and splitting just your mental energy like that is has to be really, really, really difficult. Normally, people like to ask you about your best moment in Magic. I'd like to ask, what was the most difficult loss you've ever had in Magic? Uh, unquestionably, when I lost to Simon Gertzen in San Diego, he crushed me pretty handily, like three to one. I won game one. The next three games, I just wasn't in any of the games. And <laughs> going into game four when I'm down 2-1, uh, I mold to five, but then they made us wait for 20 minutes because they had to wanted to film the other match for a while because our match was just going so quickly. And <laughs> me having to sit there and look at those five cards, knowing I was going to lose and knowing I was going to get knocked out, it was just pretty heartbreaking. I mean, I, I wanted to go into Peter. I wanted to go, you know, 19-0 at a Pro Tour. And the, I... I I'm not, I, I, you know, I'm not insane enough to think that I'm going to have very many opportunities just to be in that position. I was at that point 17 0 I had to win two more matches, and just being there was, you know, already, you know, pretty, pretty lucky. And the fact that I, you know, lost there was was pretty tough. But I was, I was not happy afterwards. <laughs> Do you feel going 17 0 on the Pro Tour is one of the most challenging things in Magic to do? Yeah, I, I think. I think winning a pro tour is a little tougher. Like, had I had I beaten Nassif, it would have been harder. Like, it was still harder having lost to him than it, it you know, it felt like playing a best of five match against someone who's like insanely good and you know having these intricate games is pretty mentally draining. And as much as I like you know love the Naya deck, it was not the most complicated deck. Like, you know, I, I would cast on my average draws turn two neither of the Royal turn three Bloodbraid off into another knight. You know, so. Oh, yeah. <laughs> So, so it doesn't take a whole lot of work there. Like that, that was just you know we built a good deck and and like the two limited decks I drafted were just monocolor beatdown decks. So it was certainly tough, and I had some very close games. But uh, I I don't think I don't think it compared to yeah my game four against Nassif is probably one of the best best games of Magic I've ever played. I would definitely recommend taking a look at it. Is there a player in the years of Magic you've played that I'd like to say had your number? Uh, yeah, actually, uh, he does not play anymore, but, uh, uh, Nikolai Podovin, he's a Russian player, he's very, very good, and, uh, I've never beaten him, I think I've played him, like, four times now, like, he beat me in Seattle playing the Fairies Mirror, and then both of us top-aided, he, uh, he beat me in, like, Pro Tour Geneva, he beat me at GP Krakow, like, I, I've actually just never come close to beating him. Do you think it's just the fact that it's very hard to say when someone has your number and something why the reason is. Do you have? Do you know why? Any ideas? Uh, I, I mean, I don't know. I think it, we, we it wasn't even always constructed. We played in limited too, and it. I guess it felt like in a couple of the matches, the decks he tended to like were had pretty good, like matched up well against the decks that I that I was playing. Like I was playing, you know, blue white pickles deck, and he was playing this like really aggressive red blue deck and constructed and. 
and just the cards did not match up well for me. Like when we played Unlimited, he had Jaya Ballard, and I was straight blue white, and I could never beat it. So, <laughs> I mean, he was certainly an excellent player. I don't want to take that away from him at all. But uh, I think you know he's just very he was very aggressive, and even like when he played fairies, you know, and that you know tended to do pretty well. Like him playing that you know perfectly, it was very good against the decks I was choosing to play. Besides yourself. Can you name me the top five players in Magic today? Did you do... It's a tough in, question. It, it is. In, in no particular order, I would definitely have to say PV, Paulo, Vitor, uh, Owen, Shuhai, and Yuya. And th- despite the fact that the, <laughs> the Japanese haven't had a good constructed deck you know, in forever, uh, they're still insane players. And as for the fifth, it's, it's very close. There's, you know... The top ten would be a lot easier, but... Uh, <laughs> well, I, I, only do, I only do five because I just want to keep it, you know, yeah, precise. Yeah. Uh, you could say there's a, ra- a large group from four to ten that would be a, a five there, to ten. There, there is. I, I, I'd have to say, when it, when it comes to limited in particular, Martin Jesus is insanely good, and uh, I think, you know, I think we've, I've learned a lot just by playing with him, so I, I guess I'll, I'll give him the nod. I had an interview with Paulo. It seems like a lot of the people on your team... I interviewed Paulo, I interviewed Paul. Very humble. There's no large egos involved with this. And I asked Paulo to be so young and to have so many points, what is it like? And he's like, I haven't accomplished enough yet, or I haven't accomplished nearly enough yet. And I'm trying to understand this from the perspective of being a fan. When you see someone that has done that well and is so consistent, and yet they don't think of themselves as one of the great players, what I wonder you as a professional, what do you think that is? Uh, I think it's. I, I wouldn't say that none of us are like pr- not proud. Like we're all. I think we're proud of what we've accomplished for sure. And I know you know Paulo is as well. But on the other hand, there's, there's a, like a pretty fine line between like being proud and being arrogant. And I, there's just no reason to be arrogant. Like it's you know I, I don't. I don't judge people based on how good they are at magic, and it has nothing, that does not reflect on them as a person. And I, I think just because you know we're very good at magic doesn't make us better people or anything like that. And because of that, I think just in general, people have a pretty down to earth attitude. It's it, it's a kind of weird kind of like celebrity where you go to a magic tournament and everyone knows who you are and you sign stuff, but you know you go to the grocery store and no one has any idea who you are. It's not like you're an actual celebrity. <laughs> well, I'm just saying we're so many great fans of magic, then I wouldn't be able to do what I do and. You know, I'm just very thankful for that. I'm thankful that I get to do what I love to do and that people enjoy it. I, you know, I, I see, like, I, I like providing a service in that regard. What do you think is out there for you at the end when you decide that playing Magic is something you don't want to do full-time anymore? I don't, I, I would definitely, I plan on being associated with the website. I think I can, you know, I'd like to think that I could cut back on my playing and still be relevant to people in terms of, you know, content, uh, Running the website is, is actually a full-time job, and if I step back from playing, I devote more time to that for sure. But I don't see stepping back from playing like in the like immediate future. At least, I mean, I'm, at the very least, not this year. With the expansion of the GPs, how difficult is it going to be for any player to grind out like they do, like the Japanese do? The Japanese are everywhere. How hard is it going to be to be that kind of player with so many tournaments next year? Uh, I think it, I think it depends on how they do it. I, I suspect that we're going to see a lot of Grand Prix on the same weekend, just because it wouldn't make sense not to. So that that way, instead of Shua having to fly to Europe or to the, you know to the United States to to play the Grand Prix, he gets to play in one in Japan while one in Europe or the United States goes on as well. And in that regard, it makes it easier. 
it's really going to depend what they do to the level system as well. Because I don't know if they're going to keep the point thresholds the same or increase them somehow. But, I mean, I would love to be able to pick and choose more with Grand Prix. Like, I would love to play more Grand Prix, but I also don't... Like, I don't really want to go to, like, Shanghai, for example, for a Grand Prix. That's just... It's just too much trouble. So, I would love to be able to just play in the Grand Prix that take, you know, one two-hour flight instead of having to play in ones that are very, very far. Because I would like to play in them. I like playing in them. But I also... I would, you know... I'm looking to cut back on travel, not increase it. <laughs> is it difficult to have the combination like you had Nagoya with the Grand Prix one week and the Pro Tour the next week? Is that difficult on a pro? Uh, I think it really depends on the formats and the order. For for Nagoya, it, Singapore Nagoya, it could have been a lot tougher if it was like Legacy the week before and then. But since it was standard, we didn't really test for it at all. We just made a Cobblade deck because, you know, Cobblade's too good. You have to play it. But in general, my preference is either have a limited one the week before so you get practice for the Pro Tour or have the Pro Tour and have the Constructed Grand Prix the week after the Pro Tour because that way the people in between the Pro Tour and the Grand Prix, you can test for the Grand Prix. But when it's Grand Prix then Pro Tour, you don't really want to test for the Grand Prix. You have to test for the Pro Tour. And that means that the Grand Prix decks you're going to see are just worse than they would have been otherwise. And that's just that's to the detriment of coverage and playing. So I much prefer, like, either limited before the Pro Tour or constructed after, because constructed before the Pro Tour is, is a little tough. Yeah, it's not, it's not the way I, I would like to have it. As being a part of coverage before Grand Prix Denver with the way Wizards does the Pro Tour, they do an awful lot. But in the opinion of a lot of people, including myself, it seems like they're missing a lot of the stuff. Do you think there's any way they could improve their coverage? Uh, I think it's insane that the Pro Tour doesn't have more matches streamed live, like on GG's Live. Like, Grand Prix have those, but they don't have them set up at the Pro Tour. And it's, I mean, that's, like, one of the best things that they could have for coverage. Like, after Kansas City, I watched a bunch of rounds that I, you know, I, I couldn't watch, like, Conley, when Conley and David Ochoa played, I couldn't watch because I was playing in the tournament. So then when I got home, you know, a couple days later, I go on GG's Live and, and I watch, you know, Conley Woods versus David Ochoa round seven or whatever, the, whatever round they played. And if they did that, if they if they had that, I think that they would just get a ton of extra exposure, a ton of extra people watching. And that's just like one simple change, I think. How much tape do you review of your matches and your fellow teammates' matches? Uh, actually, very little in general. Uh, I think after Kansas City was the first time I'd ever really gone back and rewatched matches. Though, in watching my match, I realized that I think I could have won game two against Yuya in the finals. And I, I, Tom Martell, who was doing commentary, like saw the play and I didn't. So that that was useful for, useful to me to see that, for sure. After coming back and listening to the coverage to uh, actually have Tom not be biased in the booth. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, uh, me, me and Tom have known each other for a long time, as he no doubt will tell you that we went to high school together. So I, I would expect him to be in my corner. I think it's it's only right. <laughs> Who do you think out of the younger generation? And now I know Paulo's in that younger generation, but he doesn't count because he's been playing since you know the dawn of time. <laughs> yeah, since the dawn of time. Who out of that younger generation group, like Owen and that group that hasn't broke through, do you think? might be breaking through next. Yeah, obviously, oh, it is. I mean, he's, yeah. he's going to be level 8 this year. Like, if that's not breaking through, I don't know what is. So, yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, I mean, David Sharfman won a Pro Tour and a Grand Prix this year, which is, you know, very impressive. So, like, it's kind of hard to argue against that, too. Like, 
uh, I mean, there's certainly a number of good players. Like, I'm interested to see if uh, how Edgar Flores handles the transition from the, you know, all constructed Star City tournaments to more, uh, some mixed formats and, you know, playing on the Pro Tour instead of playing on the Star City circuit, which, you know, it's, it's a good, like, step up, but I mean, he went to the Grand like, he and he certainly did well at the Grand Prix. He ran into a kind of unfortunate end of the tournament. He started 11-0 and then didn't, he had to win one of his next four rounds to top eight. He didn't, but that's still a pretty insane start for one of, I think, one of his first first couple of Grand Prix at the very least. How difficult would it be if that was you in that position at 11-0 and realizing that basically if you just won and took a couple of draws that you would make the top eight and to see it just collapse? I mean, I've never actually had a meltdown that big, not to put him on the spot, but... Uh, I mean, I think regardless, you just have to play. And if you play and you lose, like, that, that happens. Like, you, you know, I'm not going to say you can't do anything about it, because obviously you can, you can almost always have played better. But from that, you just you just have to learn from it. Like, we had, we've had this discussion many times. What would you rather lose to? Would you rather lose to making a misplay, or would you rather lose to luck? You know, and I, I'm with, like, Josh, you know, utterly, and his, his response was, in which I totally agree with, I'd rather lose to a misplay, because I know that way. I could do something better and still win, and Paulo agrees with me too. Where some people say like, "Well, I'd rather lose the luck and not and not have it be my fault." Well, if it's your fault, you can fix it. If it's not your fault, you can't fix it, and that that's not something I want to think about. Your hardest format to play. One of the ones that I, I guess I have the most trouble playing is is actually sealed deck. I I mean I I have not I do not like how I built my sealed decks in many of the Grand Prix over the last like year and a half, and I think. You know, I had to go to sealed deck school with Ben Stark, so <laughs> and uh, I, I just, for some reason, I, I, I kept trying to make too aggressive of sealed decks, and that's just not how you should be doing them in these formats. And I think, uh, I think in general that uh, I've hopefully, hopefully got done better than that now. But I, I've also had a tough time. Like sealed is not an unskilled format; it's, it can be pretty bad. But I think in general, I, I could have done a better job on that. It's certainly something I wanted to work on. Speaking of Ben. Another person who splits his time between magic and poker and has said uh, numerous things that poker is his first love because he loves the action of poker. He is considered by many people the quite possibly the best drafter in the world. Yeah, I think Ben is. I mean, he 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 is the draft guru on our team. Like for San Juan, which PB won in the top eight was draft, and you know we also had Josh and Brad in the top eight. In our team at an insane record, and it was because of Ben. Ben taught us how all how to draft that format almost single-handedly. Like Ben, and that hasn't changed. I mean, Ben is just very, very good at drafting, and he certainly is the person that we all listen to the most. It almost seems like everybody on the team fills a role. Like they bring something different to the table that there's not a immense amount of overlapping for what skill sets players bring to the table. Do you think that helps the team? Yeah, I mean, for sure, like, you you know, if a, a team is a machine, you've got to have a bunch of different parts to make it work. Like, you know, we have to have Matt Nass and Conley there to try the crazy brews and constantly get made fun of. Uh, we, <laughs> we've got to have David Ochoa there to scowl at everyone. <laughs> like, <laughs> no, but in all seriousness, we, we, we do have to have a bunch of people who do different things because, you know, like, for example, like, me and PV think very similarly, which is awesome, but on the other hand, I wouldn't want a team of just me and PV because we need people who think differently. And 
I think having a lot of perspectives, like for Nagoya, Kibler tried so many different decks, and even though they didn't work out, like the fact they tried them is valuable, and that, that's what we're looking for. We, we need people who can brew, and you know, we also need people who can play a lot of games. Like some people don't like playing a ton of games, and that, that's fine, but some people do. And we just having a good mix of all that is really, really important. One of the things that you've done even with Magic TV is, you know, you've brought in people from other places. You've had Chapin on. I don't know, at least four or five times from what I can remember. The relationships outside of the Channel Fireball team, that there's a large group of you that kind of all kind of work together. Is that one of the things that makes it difficult for someone who is trying to ascend to that level, that they just don't have the amount of, I guess you would say, mental resources to help go to that next level? Yeah, I think if you're looking to, to you know, level up as you were, the, the most important thing is to have a team. And I think a lot of people, I guess, approach things the wrong way. Networking is, I mean, ne- everything's about networking. Like life is about networking. Like, and magic's not different in that regard. You, you, knowing how to communicate effectively with other people, how to meet other people, and not even from like, you know, a completely uh, like self-interested standpoint. Just in general, I think being able to build up network is oh, well, it makes magic more fun too. Like you, you have a bunch of like-minded people. It's, it'd be hard not to make friends with them. <laughs> and it also helps you when it comes to tournaments. Like it's not like I, we built this team by setting out to build a super team. It's that me and Paulo met at GP Phoenix, you know, five years ago or six years ago or whatever. And, you know, became friends. It's that, you know, Josh Utterlayton went to PTQs in this area and we started hanging out and we're friends and that, you know, it's not, this isn't exactly, it's not like we, you know, made our roster based on, you know, a checklist of things that of things that people did well. It's that you know we made it, made teams with our friends. And I think if you can find friends who you can work well with, that that's how you make a team, and that's really like the the strength of it. So you're not the New York Yankees, and just saying. <laughs> uh, no, I mean, I, yeah. no, I, I I don't think that I've heard the comparison before, but I don't think that's entirely true. Like it's it's not all business. I mean, if you're playing Magic for the money, you're you're really doing it for the wrong reasons. Oof. Uh, you're not kidding. I I still wonder how they can pay so much for the Pro Tour and get, you know, 1,400, 1,500 people for a GP and they're throwing... If you win, you may get enough to pay for your airfare back home. Yeah, it's yeah, it's tough. Like, I, I don't know very many people who play Magic full-time without supplementing their income via writing or some other, some other income stream, like, you know, Ben playing poker or, or what have you. Like, I just, it seems like it would be tough and you have, you really have to love it. Like if you, again, if you, I don't know anyone who doesn't enjoy playing magic, like an insane amount because <laughs> otherwise you, you wouldn't play magic. You talked about writing. One of the things along with doing the video podcasts, it is difficult to come up with articles. I mean, I've heard it from numerous people to come up with an interesting article is sometimes very challenging. How do you keep articles relevant? I guess I was kind of lucky in that I was handed a couple uh, topics by you know, doing well at tournaments, and people like to hear about that. But in general, it is hard to come up with topics. I mean, do, I've you know recently restarted the Running the Gauntlet series and you know articles slash video series, and even though I'm incorporating the new M12 cards in as they come out, like I mean that's the sort of thing that helps to stay relevant. Like it, it's hard to come up with articles. Coming up with an article every week is not something that 
I would say is easy, especially if you want to, you know, not sacrifice quality. And, you know, not very many people, I think, can achieve that feat. I'm not saying even saying that I do because I, I don't I don't write an article every single week, whereas like Paulo does. And he manages to come up with insanely good articles every week. Speaking of insanely good articles with him, this week's article. Obviously, after the joke on the Twitter network about you not reading the article or not getting the article, what do you think? He broaches a subject that is, I guess you would say, kind of sensitive within the magic community. Yeah, I mean, I, I think when when I heard, when he told me he was writing a Women in Magic article, my first thought was like, oh, no, really? Like, this is a joke, <laughs> right? But that being said, I read it, and I think it's a, a, a very good piece of work. Uh, I, I'm not saying I agree with everything in the article, but... I, I think the way he did it was really well, and I really liked seeing the responses that some of the people he interviewed. Like, I liked that he got uh, Natalia, the you know, the chess master, to to talk about uh, her experiences in chess. And I think, I think he 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 put a lot of work into it, and it's definitely one of the best articles that I've read. It's a tough subject, it really is, and I've seen a lot of people give opinions that are, eh, let's just say, not the best. And I just think that as magic grows and it's growing i mean obviously you can tell by the attendance at tournaments and the volume that goes through the site that's an untapped market if that segment even increases by say 50 or 75 percent you're talking about a large influx of people on the gp level what do you think that would do if it grand prix got to say 2000 oh i mean i've been to a grand prix that was 2200 in madrid and it was not fun <laughs> uh I think part of it is they did not expect that kind of turnout, and so the hall was too small. Uh, if the tournament organizer can expect and adequately prepare for a 2,000-person tournament, I think it can go well. And, like, if you get Steve Port to run it, who always runs the best tournaments ever, then, you know, that that helps too. But uh, in general, I, I mean, I, both for, like, selfish reasons, like it's easier to win a tournament that's smaller. I don't want there to be 2,000. And just logistically, it's not fun to play in a tournament and never see your friends. And in a 2,000-person tournament... You can go a whole day without seeing your friends because it's just so massive that you don't even run into them. What I found interesting in, in the events I've gone to, and just through observation alone, a lot of times in between rounds, you're not even talking about magic. You're talking about something funny or something unique that's not magic-related. It could be something that somebody saw or a comment that somebody made. It seems like you would think in a situation like that there would be so much pressure, but it seems like you guys are having an awful lot of fun. Well, again, if it isn't fun, we wouldn't have done it, and yeah. it it is fun. I mean, and I mean, there are definitely times when we all feel the pressure, but yeah, I would say at a Grand Prix, like it's especially during the like beginning to middle of the tournament, it's just. I mean, we're, we're there to have a good time. We're there to, we're, we're fairly relaxed, and being relaxed actually helps you more than being tense anyway. So, I think in general, like you. You have to be able to deal with that somehow. Like, I, I remember uh, one of my friends who, like, didn't like when people, like, you know, big groups of people watching play, and he's, like, you know, trying to PTQ and qualify for an approach. And I'm like, look, you've got to get over that because if you're trying to go to a pro tour, people are going to watch you play. Like, if you want to win a PTQ, like, PTQ finals tend to get watched by a lot of, you know, a fair amount of people, all the people who are still left at the tournament. So you have to be able to deal with that. And all the people, all of us, can we can deal with it pretty easily. And so that's why we're, you know, joking between rounds, not really worrying about it. One of the things, again, larger magic community with in your circles, I guess you would like to say, of, of pro-level players. After you are done with a round, if someone's left over, it seems like you're all kind of grouping around them and watching them just like you talked about. Are there certain people you like to watch play? Uh, 
I like watching people uh, who play fast uh, <laughs> because when people play really slow, it, it 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 definitely makes it hard for me to watch. Uh, yeah, I, I like watching Paulo play because you know I think he plays very well, and I like the plays he makes. Uh, I I haven't had a huge opportunity to watch. Like I love watching like Shota Yasuka is awesome because Shota is not only like very good, he also plays the the craziest decks. Like he he was the guy who made the four color the red green Tezzeret deck for Nagoya. I remember in Amsterdam last year, you know I saw him go turn two Doran, turn three Cryptic Command. So <laughs> you know he likes to brew and he plays super fast. Me and him played a match that was over in like fifteen minutes in Paris and or maybe even less probably. Like it just you know. He he's, he already knows what you're gonna do and just and just takes the damage even though you haven't attacked yet. Like <laughs> it, it's pretty fun watching him play. Is there any is there any problem with the language barrier at all that you've had on the tour? Uh, I think for the most part, no. I mean, people, we all speak magic, and uh, uh, if you can speak magic, you can make yourself understood. And especially if you're at, you're at a pro tour, this isn't for the most part. It's not their first, you know, people's first pro tour, and. It, it's not that hard to figure out what's going on. I mean, everyone knows what untap means, what target means. Like, if you play Magic, you know these things. And as long as you're clear about what's going on, which you should be doing even if you do speak the same language, you don't run into problems. I I don't think I've ever had to run call a judge for a language issue. I'm, I'm just clear about what's happening. And if I'm not, I'll call a judge or, or I'll make them clarify So just before I do anything. So I know who they're targeting. I know if they're attacking, like that sort of thing. Speaking of judges, do you think the level and quality of judges have improved over the years? Oh, most definitely. Yeah. Every year it gets better. Uh, I think on some issues they're like, there's a way to go, but I don't know how easy that will be to fix. But I think in general judges, you know, at this point I have utmost confidence in judges in like, for, you know, almost every situation. The, the one exception is like slow play that is, you know, extremely well I'm, well, I'm saying, like, I, I play fast enough that I've almost never had a problem with slow play. I just know many of my friends have, and I've seen it personally, like, in a bunch of other matches. So that's, like, a general thing that I have. But in the actual, per, you know, how it affects me personally, it's, like, very minimal just because, you know, I can count on one hand probably the number of times that I've, like, got picked up an unintentional draw. Put you on the spot here. You have over 250 lifetime points, a pro win, a second, a third, a seventh. Four Grand Prix wins. You've been a part of the U.S. national team. Do you think you've done enough to be in the Hall of Fame? Uh, yeah. I mean, I, I do. I don't want to be like immodest or jinx it, but uh, you know, I I think I, I I would like to. I would be honored if I was voted into the Hall of Fame. And, I, and at this point, I do feel that I've earned it. Though I have been on the national team twice, if, if, if you know, if you're counting. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. I apologize. <laughs> I, I had it as once, and no, <laughs> no worries. But. <laughs> Like I said, I mean, I, I, I don't want to, you know, toot my own horn, but I think if you look at, like, the stats of the people who have been voted in, I think making top eight in Nagoya, you know, pushing four Pro Tour wins is about the threshold. I, I kind of had that mental thought that if I can top eight four Pro Tours, then that increases my chances greatly. I mean, I'm not going to say I'm a lot because I don't think, you know, that would be wise, but... It looks good. <laughs> I, I like to think so, yeah. Okay. I mean, I mean come on. Well, even Paulo says, you know is, quote, worried about, you know, the Pro Tour Hall of Fame when he knows he's getting it. He's seven Pro Tour top eights. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny. He, like I said, when I go back to the interview with him, he, he just feels he's not there and that there's so much left to do. And I, and I think that's the one thing that I really enjoy about watching you guys play Magic is that it seems like no matter what stage of Magic you in, you're in, there's always a desire to keep playing and keep getting better. 
Well, if Paulo had more trophies, then maybe he'd feel differently. But <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. He, he, he's only won two events. Just, 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 you know, I'm keeping track of these things. No, but uh, <laughs> uh, I mean, I was very, very, you know, extremely happy to see him win, win the Pro Tour because it was just like a huge breakthrough for him after making so many top eights and losing in the first run of most of them. But uh, I think. I mean, none of us want to, like, rest on our laurels. Like, you know, do you play Magic because, you know, you, you, you like it? And I think all of us would like to think that there's, you know, sweet stuff in the future because he doesn't want to, like, oh, I have 300 pro points. Time for the Lifetime Achievement Award. I'm out, you know. <laughs> like, that, that's there's, every tournament still feels very important. Now, you've obviously, you know, the history of Magic. There's been many debates over who is in that 1-2 slot all time. Who's your vote for 1-2 and two all time in Magic? I think I have to vote for Kaya as number one, uh, and then Finkel as number two, obviously. I think the, the main difference is Kai just put an insane amount of work in, and he got insane results as uh, you know because of it. And I I do think that Finkel may, you know is a more talented natural player, but I don't know. I, just, I think winning three Pro Tours in a year, is, I mean, in a calendar year or whatever, is that 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 sort of like I think there, you, there's a reward for dedication, and I think you know he he earned it, so that, that that's why he gets my vote. How impressed were you when Kai made the comeback this year? Oh, it was awesome. Like, I think everyone loves it when, you know, Kai, like when Fink, I was there in uh, 2008 when Fickle came back and won, you know, G, uh, PT uh, KL in, uh, in Malaysia. And uh, seeing Kai, you know, come back in Amsterdam and make top eight was just insane. Like, the only people who probably weren't fans are the people he beat on the way. So, <laughs> but, I mean, you'd like to, it's so awesome seeing the people who, you know, who used to play a lot more and, you know, the best players of all time, like literally come back and do well because, I mean, everyone wants to think that they, they can take a break and come back. And I think these guys, I mean, not everyone's Kyra Finkel, but it's nice to think that if, uh, let's say, I stopped playing Magic for three or four years or whatever, I can come back and still do well if I put put in the time and the work. And, I mean, these guys, like Kai especially, did practice for the Pro Tour. It's not like he just walked in and was handed the deck. Speaking of a person who stepped away for a couple of years and came back, Brian Kibler did that. And yes, he did. How difficult is it to see someone who was at the level he was, to step away for a couple of years, you know, you'll see the same faces, but on occasion you may see a talented player, I'll use Paul as an example, who steps away from the game, even though he's still very talented at it. How difficult it is as a player to see someone talented step away from the game? I guess Paul is a better example, because I, I didn't really know Kilber before he stopped. So, like, I only I only really was a, got acquainted with him once he came back. I wasn't as sad about Paul leaving Magic as the fact that he was, you know, leaving the country. <laughs> like, uh, yeah. Uh, moving to Curacao. So I'm, I was happy that he was, you know, doing something he wanted to do and loves doing, and he's still doing it. Like, so I think personally, I think people should do what's best for them. And it, it sucks when people leave, have to leave, you know, or to feel they have to leave for whatever reason. But on the other hand, if they're doing something that they need to do or they feel they need to do, that's, that's perfectly legitimate. Like if, you know, if Paulo said... I really need to concentrate on school. I'm not going to play Magic next year. I mean, I would certainly be sad, you know, but if that's what he felt he needed to do, then I would support him in that. So, Speaking of Paulo again, Paulo says he's potentially looking to move out of Brazil, and he yeah. wants to find a home, and he's talked about Southern California, Australia, Europe. What do you think you have to do to get Paulo to say, hey, look, South California is a great place to live? Well, I would hope he moved to Northern California because that's or, actually where I am. Oh, Northern California. <laughs> well, that kind of connection, the California thing. 
Well, I, it is a pretty big state. I mean, it's it's about an eight hour drive. So <laughs> to be on that scene over there, yeah, it would be no, it would be great. Uh, I don't know what I'd have to do to convince him. And we've certainly talked about it, but I think he doesn't know either. He he needs to figure out what he's looking for and what he wants to do. And once he does that, then I can maybe start presenting arguments. If you know, if he's if I know what he's looking for, I can try to try to convince him. But you know, I can't I can't out of the blue say like, hey, you should come here because of yeah, <laughs> but speaking of challenges, you are a married man. Uh, I am, and the challenge of being a husband, and your job is not a standard forty-hour workweek job by any means. You just spent basically a month on the road. How difficult is it to be a husband and a full-time magic player? Uh, it certainly has its challenges. I mean, I, I, I do like ration my trips like. If, again, like I said, not going to like some foreign GPs that were I unattached, you know, I, may, I might consider it. I certainly have to do more planning now. I can't just think of myself anymore. So I definitely have to like plan out my schedules more in advance than I would have otherwise and figure out how I can basically get the preparation that I need while still not spending an, in, an inordinate amount of time away from home. Like, if not for the community cup, I would have been home for a week in between, you know, five days or whatever, in between Kansas City and Nagoya. So then I wouldn't have been, after Providence, I came back home before leaving. So whereas, you know, Paulo was gone for five weeks from his house, I was gone for like two and a half because I made sure to come back in between. And that's the sort of thing that I do because, you know, I, I don't want to be gone for five weeks. <laughs> How difficult is it for her to understand your schedule and for you to understand hers? Diverse schedules. It's, it's not like you can say a normal job is what you do. No, no, certainly not. And, uh, I mean, there's, you know, obviously, like, some compromise. But not for the most part, it's, I mean, we, we operate on somewhat different schedules. But, you know, she, she has, you know, she is an academic advisor for college. So, you know, she, she works basically 9 to 5, Monday through Friday. But whereas, you know, I don't. <laughs> but on the plus side, you know, I, I actually cook dinner most of the time. So. <laughs> Uh, you know, when, when needed, you know, I can do all sorts of things because I have, I have the flexible schedule that certainly helps. And, you know, also she loves the fact that she came to Chiba for worlds last year. She came to uh, San Juan last year, Honolulu, like, you know, we get to go on these vacations to really awesome places that, you know, we wouldn't have been able to go to without magic because I'm already there. So then we're not paying for like a whole thing where she can just show up and we can, you know, go around and, and tour, and it's, it's it's really cool. I was going to ask about that, the ability to have her go with you. That has got to be almost, like, relaxing because of the fact that to have someone that's your partner basically to be there by your side supporting you, that, that has got to be a lot of fun as, as, as a player. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it certainly helps. Though she basically tends to show up on, like, the last day of the tournaments because, uh, you know, two days ago, like, Two or three days in a foreign country before, in the days before the pro tour, you know, would not be a, would probably not be the best situation for either of us in that I'm worried about the pro tour and I want, you know, I want, I just want to test for the pro tour. I don't want to do touristy things. So we, we tend to do a stay like a week after, you know, would I don't have to worry about any of that sort of thing. And there's absolutely no, you know, obligations on my time. So that certainly works a lot better. You have answered an awful lot of my questions tonight <laughs> because a lot of things change in a calendar year. And well, phenomenal feeling as being hey, the face of Fireball. It's got to be really neat to see that all your teammates doing so well. Yeah, it's uh, it, it's really awesome. And, you know, 
not a whole lot that can replace winning in a tournament, but if I'm not going to win, watching one of my friends and teammates win is honestly almost as good. It's, it's, it's very rewarding, and, you know, it's great to see. Well, again, I thank you for your time. And for the Metamagic, Robert Martin with multiple-time champion Luis Scott Vargas signing off. <laughs>